1918, Tokichi Ishii was hung for murder. Previously, he had already been sent to prison over 20 times for murder, stealing weapons, robbery, breaking out of prison, and many other heinous acts. He was viewed as one of the toughest and scariest men in Tokyo. He attacked prison guards while being detained for his crimes. He was severely hated, and many responded to him in violence. After attacking a prison guard on one occasion, Ishii was bound, gagged, and hung from the ceiling so his toes barely reached the ground. Just before receiving his death sentence, Tokichi Ishii received a New Testament sent to him by two Christian missionaries. Ishii's violent acts of murder had been responded to by many with acts of violence and hatred. He had never experienced a response of pity and patience such as this. The Holy Spirit began a work in Ishii, and because of this act of these two missionaries, he began reading this Bible. Ishii came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Soon after Ishii received his death sentence, these two missionaries who had sent him the New Testament came to visit him in prison. And after he had received his death sentence, he responded, this is the fair and partial judgment of God. He knew God was completely just, but he also understood God's patience and his mercy. And when these two missionaries came to visit him, they directed Ishii back to scripture. And following this visit, Ishii said, perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain who ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ. And so they may also come to repent. Then it may be that though I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. Ishii was put to death with great humility. His last words were, my soul purified today returns to the city of God. Similarly to our text this morning, Ishii's story is one of justice and mercy. Justly put to death and yet by his claims, living forever with his king in heaven. Ishii once wrote, I wish to speak now of the greatest favor of all, the power of Christ, which cannot be measured by any of our standards. I have been more than 20 years in prison since I was 19 years of age. And during that time, I have known what it meant to endure suffering, although I have had some pleasant times as well. I have passed through all sorts of experiences and have been urged often to repent of my sins. In spite of this, however, I did not repent but on the contrary became more and more hardened. And then by the power of that one word of Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. My unspeakably hardened heart was changed and I repented of all my crimes. Such power is not in man. This morning, we will look at an historical account that is hard to bear. It's oftentimes a passage incorrectly associated with an Old Testament God who somehow differs from, a new, from the New Testament God because of his just punishment of sin that is so clearly displayed. This is a misunderstanding. God always has and always will justly, rightly punish sin. 
He has and always will view sin as an abomination to his person and his rule. He has always, though, been full of mercy and grace. Yes, he perfectly punishes sin, but he also perfectly shows mercy. We must understand Genesis 18, 16 through 1938 correctly. Sin is heinous. Its results are devastating. In the midst of that devastation, God shows unbelievable mercy. To help us understand this account, I want to give four events that tell the story of Sodom. Four events that tell the story of Sodom. First, we see the plea. The plea. We enter into verse 16 after these three visitors have eaten and they've rehearsed God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah again. They've gone through it because Sarah and Abraham, like us, are prone to forget. And so they rehearse this covenant, this promise to them again. And we come into verse 16 right after Sarah has told a lie, saying that when she was told that she would have a child at such an old age, she's saying she didn't laugh, when in reality she did. The attention immediately and abruptly turns towards Sodom. While two of the men go towards Sodom, God and Abraham are going to meet together. And God has this conversation with himself to start. Maybe you noticed in the verses Sarah read, God has this conversation with himself to start. And I think this conversation with himself is more about revealing something to us than it is about God really needing to have a conversation with himself. This talking to himself is reminiscent of his conversation with himself in Genesis 1.26 before he made Adam. God is demonstrating to us what a covenant relationship is supposed to look like, is meant to look like. Sarah and Abraham struggled to understand this. They were guilty of lying. And about Sarah being Abraham's sister, about Sarah laughing when she was told that she would have a child at such an old age, they were guilty of lying. And that wasn't the, the, the thing that marked a covenant relationship. Yahweh is modeling this honesty and this trust. He again reiterates his covenant with Abraham and that he chose Abraham. Abraham didn't choose him. Yahweh discloses his righteous judgment against Sodom to Abraham. He says their sin is great. The outcry, the groanings because of their sin are great. God already knows their sin. He knows their hearts. He knows the destruction and the evil taking place. He knows the death that characterizes their lives. This going down, the verses say, well, Yahweh goes down to see about this outcry against Sodom. This outcry of Yahweh, or this going down of Yahweh to see this rebellion of, of Sodom is, is reminiscent of him going down to see the Tower of Babel. It's not that God doesn't know. He already knows their hearts. But he goes down. And verse 23 tells us that before Abraham made his plea before God, before he makes his heart known to God, which God already knows, but before he makes his heart known, 
What does verse 23 tell us? He drew near. Now let me ask you something. How? How can Abraham draw near? It's amazing to me that Abraham, in his sin, that this statement can even be used. How can Abraham, who is sinful, who is, has a sin nature, draw near to God who is holy? We've already seen the answer. He, God reiterated this answer in verse 19. God chose Abraham to make a covenant with. God chose to draw close to him first. Abraham then makes his plea as the one who, who can draw close to God because God had, drawn fir, had first drawn close to him. And Abraham intercedes on behalf of the people of Sodom. Abraham acts as a, as a priest for the people. And Abraham interceded fully knowing God would do what is just and what is right. Kent Hughes says, God is righteous in his being and just in his actions. Abraham's whole intercession rested on this awesome understanding of God. Knowing God's justice, Abraham's plea is both for justice and mercy to be accomplished. Yahweh is God. Abraham is not. And yet God listens to Abraham's weak plea. He's God. He doesn't have to listen. And he listens to his plea. And Abraham's plea, his request, his intercession is redundant, it seems. But, but look, we, we have all of these verses where Abraham is going back to God over and over and, and repeating his same, his same request with lesser numbers. But again, I think this reveals something to us. Church, we must look at Abraham's plea and throughout see that Abraham not only reveals that God is just and that God is merciful, he also reveals much about God and much about humanity. God says he will spare all of Sodom if he finds 50 righteous, to which Abraham responds that he is but dust and ashes. Man was formed out of the dust of the ground and will go back to dust and ashes. Man, this, this points to man's finiteness and God's infiniteness. Abraham asked about 45, and God's response is again one of mercy. 40, Abraham asked, mercy. Abraham acknowledges God's power and his patience with his pleas. He says, you are God, I am not. Thank you for being patient with my pleas. I come to you as but man. If you find 30 righteous men, God responds with mercy. Abraham says, I understand, understand I'm speaking to Yahweh God, but would you spare Sodom for 20 righteous? And Yahweh says, mercy. Yahweh extends his mercy to say, if he finds 10 righteous in Sodom, he will not destroy the city. He listened to the pleas of Abraham and he gave mercy. God could have responded, I am God. Man is exceedingly evil. How dare you come to me when I know the heart of men? You don't. And immediately destroyed Sodom. And he would have been perfectly righteous in doing so. But he, he doesn't. He listened. And he will graciously act according to what he has promised. Abraham knows this truth. Because he approached all-powerful God to begin with. 
He knows that God will, grace, will act graciously and will act justly because he, finite man, is approaching infinite God who could destroy him. It shows that Abraham knows this also because he simply returns home. <laughs> he hears God say, if there are 10 righteous men, I won't destroy it. Abraham returns home. Abraham knows the reality of sin, of justice, of mercy. This ends the plea. The second event that tells the story of Sodom is the punishment. The punishment. What we are about to see is the seriousness of sin. Sodom is a real picture of the death that sin must bring. It's the devastating result of the fall of man that, the man that happened in Genesis 3. The angels from verse 22 of chapter 18 come to the gate of Sodom and Lot is there. And Lot bows his face to the ground, just like Abraham did at the beginning of chapter 18. If you were go, to go back to the beginning of chapter 18 and look, when Abraham encountered these, he bowed his face to the ground and Lot does the same thing here. Lot offers these, these men, these angels, a, a place to stay, and they refuse. So what does Lot do? Lot presses harder, and they oblige. After they eat and before they lay down to sleep, we see, we get a, a vivid picture of the story of Sodom, the evil of Sodom. These messengers from God witness firsthand the terrible circumstances of this place. The men of Sodom, both young and old, surround Lot's house and demand grotesque actions with these visitors. Church, we don't need to shy away from what scripture says. Their acts are wicked. They are perverted. They are unnatural. And the list could go on and on. They want to have sexual relations with these visitors. Their sin is so out in the open because this is how all of Sodom lived. This was normalcy in Sodom. It wasn't that they were trying to hide behind closed doors. They're shouting at this house to bring out these visitors so that they can do these acts with them. One author says their repulsive desires reflected the tragic degree of degeneracy that had developed there. Listen, church, I say this, I say this understanding the weight of what is being said. The reality of the sin of Sodom is that it's, it's homosexual in nature, it's prideful, it's rape, and as we will find out at the end of the story, it's incest. Jude verse seven says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Here's the reality, church. Don't hear me say that the sin here is rape, incest, homosexuality, and think, man, poor Sodom. Here's the reality. This is our own depravity. 
Yes, the same-sex unnatural desire of these men of Sodom is sinful, but it's the same root as all of my sin. It's pride. It's self-worship. It's the same as my selfishness, my anger, my lust. And I do not say it is the same to lighten the load of what happened here, because as you're going to see in Sodom, the punishment is great. Sin always is serious. It's always evil. The story of Sodom screams of sin's evil. The horrendous, serious reality of sin. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. You know what that says to me? Sodom's sexual immorality started with pride. No care for the poor and needy started with pride. It started with a haughty attitude. When we deny the seriousness of sin, when we look at Sodom or look at our own lives, when we look at Sodom and say, they did something that I don't do, we're denying the seriousness of sin. And when we deny the seriousness of sin, we deny the significance of the cross of Christ. If if sin really isn't that serious, then you know what? Christ didn't really die for that much. So are we going to call sin serious? Are we going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, this is me? Lot shuts the door and begs these men to stop their evil. He tries to protect. He's trying to be hospitable. But in doing so, Lot doesn't protect his own daughters. If you look at the text, if you read chapter 19, you see there were, you see that he, he offers his daughters as a, as a substitution for having these men come out. You see, there were laws in place about hospitality, hospitality that you must protect visitors that were underneath your care, that you must have provision for them. But this provision of these visitors is not an excuse to lack provision for his own family. It's amazing that, that Lot offers his daughter and doesn't think God can provide an answer if, if I don't do this, God can help and he doesn't need my unrighteous schemes in order to accomplish what he will. What's the response from all the men of Sodom? All the men of Sodom grow angrier and they ask if he is now the judge of them because he has said, I'm not bringing out these men. How often is this our world today? Now I expect an unbeliever to act like an unbeliever. I'm not saying that. But how often do we lovingly confront brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ in sin? And this is the attitude. Who are you to judge? Who are you to call this sin? Our world and sadly our church does the same thing. What do these men do? They threaten to do worse to Lot than they were going to do to these visitors. They're insane in their sin. And this is what sin does. Sorry to the kids in the room, sin makes you stupid. That's what it does. It makes you blind. 
They are spiritually blind. The angels, what do they do? They pull Lot into his house and shut the door, and they immediately strike this sin-crazed mob with physical blindness. They were already spiritually blind, and they continue to show their spiritual blindness through groping of the door after they have been made physically blind. They don't want to stop their sin. They don't want to cease from doing what they're doing. Then Lot hears, after he has been pulled inside to safety, Lot hears of the coming punishment. These two angels tell Lot to gather his family and flee because Sodom is going to be destroyed because of their evil. The next several verses are Lot telling family members that, that don't believe him. They think he's joking. Lot himself lingers until morning. I don't know about you, but if I was told that a uh, that, uh, city that I'm currently residing in is about to be destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. I might be Lot. I don't know. Maybe I'm foolish to say. I think I would run. I think I would get out. But Lot lingers. He stays until morning. And the angels finally have to grab Lot and force him to leave. And the angels give clear instruction from God to Lot and his family. Here's their instruction. Escape, with your Escape for your life. Don't look back. Do not stop. Go to the hills or you will die. Listen, Lot has already been given mercy. His life has been spared. He lingered in Sodom and it took the angels forcing him out for him to leave. This is mercy. God did not have to deliver Abraham in, in chapter 18. He doesn't have to deliver Lot, but in his mercy, he does. And Lot's request in chapter 19 looks really similar to Abraham's request in chapter 18. Remember, Abraham is very redundant in his, in his uh, request. What about 50? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? He's very redundant. And Lot's is, it's not that it's redundant, but Lot requests to go to a small town instead of fleeing away to the hills for fear of his life. Can I go to Zor instead? Can I go to this small town? And again, even though mercy has already been shown in that these angels tell Lot and Lot is granted that he can leave Sodom, he's allowed to flee to this town. And mercy is shown not just to Lot, but it's shown to another town in the valley, Zor. And as soon as Lot gets to Zor, as soon as he gets there, fire and sulfur rain down from heaven. Again, this is the perfect justice of God. Yes, he has continually shown mercy, but this is the seriousness of sin. The cities were completely vanquished in that the entire valley was overthrown and everyone died and even the vegetation was all consumed in flames. Sometimes we forget too quickly about the righteousness and the holiness of our God. Lot's wife, forsaking Yahweh's instruction, turned and looked back at Sodom. She was instantly consumed by the sulfur and ash and turned into a pillar of salt. She may have turned back 
because all of her earthly possessions were back in Sodom. But I think it points to her sin-sick heart being in Sodom. Abraham sees the destruction, the smoke rising like out of a furnace. God punished and judged the sin of Sodom. Life's Lot's wife was gone. The cities of the valley obliterated. And yet, and yet, though his wife is gone, though the cities are destroyed, God gave mercy and he continues to. This is the punishment. The plea, the punishment, and now the pattern. The next event in the story of Sodom, the pattern. Over the last several years, I've read my boys a lot of Curious George books. We went to McKay's a couple of weeks ago and I picked up several new ones, not new, they're like 25 years old, but new ones for us. And every Curious George book has the same pattern, same exact pattern. George sets out to do one task with the man in the yellow hat, gets into trouble, and ends up doing a completely different task that's successful. While this pattern seems so simple, it engages children because they don't know what turn is going to happen next. They know George will be in some kind of trouble, they just don't know what. Patterns help in stories, and really patterns help us in life. The story of Sodom is not just a story like Curious George to provide entertainment. No, the pattern provides eternal truths that we must understand. We must grasp. There is such a pattern. There are so many parallels between the story of Noah and the story of Sodom. There's no doubt in my mind. And when I go to the text, there's no doubt in my mind that God completely intended for it to be this way. Now I've been told by several of my coworkers that I go through list really fast when I do list and sermons. So I'm gonna go through this pretty quickly. If I go through it too quickly and you don't grasp all of it, I can send you a chart that's been put together, not by me, but by somebody else that shows the similarities between these books, between these stories, okay? Listen to these. In Genesis 6, 1 through 3, angels come to earth to have inappropriate relations with women. In Genesis 19, 1 through 5, angels come to Sodom and men want to have inappropriate relations with them. Genesis 6, 8, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. In Genesis 19, 18, Lot finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. In Genesis 6, 9, and 7, 1, Noah is a righteous man. In 2 Peter 2, 8, Lot is called a righteous man. And in Genesis 18, 19, Abraham is able to teach righteousness. Genesis 6, 13, God says to Noah that the earth is filled with violence and he plans to destroy man, man within the earth, with the earth. Genesis 19, 13 through 14, God plans to destroy Sodom because the outcry against it has been great. Genesis 6, 19 and 20, God preserves life through instructing to bring wildlife onto the ark. Genesis 19, 19, Lot found favor in God's sight and he preserves him and his family. Genesis 7, 16, God, sh- God shut them in the ar- ark. Genesis 19, 10, the angels from God put, pull Lot in the door and shut the door. 
Genesis 7, 4, God sends rain for 40 days and 40 nights to judge the evil of the world. Genesis 19, 24, God rains on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire to judge the cities. Genesis 8, 1, God remembered Noah. Genesis 19, 29, God remembered Abraham. Genesis 9, 20, Noah gets drunk. Genesis 19, 32 and 34, Lot's daughters get Lot drunk. The pattern is undeniable between these two stories. And the pattern teaches us. We can't just recognize there's a pattern and walk away and say that it's not there. This pattern teaches us. It teaches us that a denial of God is a denial of life. It teaches us that an embrace of sin is an embrace of death. This pattern must cause us to look at our lives deeply. This this pattern must cause us to self-assess. It must cause a desire in us to kill our sin, to put it to death, to ask, is it ruling over us? To ask if we are in this same destruction as Sodom, if we're clinging to the same false hope, if we're clinging to the same pride, As one author says, we must honestly assess how deeply we each can be entrenched in Sodom and how deeply Sodom can be entrenched in us. This pattern points us to ask, how deeply am I entrenched in sin? And how deeply is sin entrenched in me? But it also must cause us to ask how deeply the grace of God reaches to pull us out of our sin. That's the beauty of it, that we can see the grace and the mercy of God despite the destruction that is, in, that is taking place. Because in the story of Noah and in the story of Sodom, we see the judgment of sin, yes, but we also see the mercy of God. And that leads us to our last event in the story of Sodom, the plea, the punishment, the pattern. The last event that tells the story of Sodom is the promise the promise. Through sparing Abraham, his promise, his covenant with him is continuing. God's promise extends into him telling Abraham he will not destroy Sodom if he finds 10 righteous men. God in his mercy spares Lot and allows him to go to Zor instead of the hills. These are all looking at promises from God. But the promise is not over. And we're missing the conclusion of the story if we think the promises are over at that point. They're not even close. You see, God's promise extends into the evil that Lot's daughters create at the end of the story. We haven't gone through what they've done at the end of the story. Okay, righteous Lot, who the New Testament refers to him twice as righteous, righteous Lot flees to Zor. After he's been in Zor, out of fear, he goes and lives in the hills with his daughters in a cave. Lot's daughters devise a sinful plan. They plan this out. Their unnatural desires, their incest expresses a lack of faith in God and his promises. They don't understand the promises of God. They get their father drunk two separate times and they seek to get pregnant with their father. Again, 
I ask this question, just like I did of Lot. Can God not have continued his plan without this? Of course he could. This is man taking matters into their own hands with no regard for God. Lot is drunk and doesn't know when they even laid down or when they got up. And after this sin, both daughters become pregnant. Don't forget why we're here, the promise. Listen to this. The firstborn daughter has a son and named him Moab, meaning father. And from him came the Moabites. The other had a son and named him Ben-Ami, meaning son of my people. And from him came the Ammonites. That may seem really insignificant, but it's far from it. The Moabites and the Ammonites are characterized by evil, by worshiping false God. They were opponents of Israel, but there is such promise and such grace despite the sin of Lot's daughters, despite their evil, despite their faithlessness, despite their not trusting in the promises of God, There's such promise and grace in this. Just six books later, after Genesis, we meet a Moabite widow named Ruth. A Moabite. Ruth and Boaz are parents to Obed, who fathers Jesse, who fathers King David. Ruth, the Moabite, the Moabites coming from the sinfully conceived baby Moab. She is in the lineage of Jesus. There's such promise from God despite evil from man. Ruth, the Moabite widow in his lineage. Kent Hughes says, Jesus, Abraham's seed par excellence, did what Abraham could never do. He became sin on the cross, bearing all the unrighteousness and injustices of those who come to him. Our sins were focused on Christ on the cross. On the cross, Christ was robed in all that is heinous and hateful as the mass of our corruption poured over him. With horror, Christ found his entire being to be sin in the Father's sight. Listen, when we see the story of Sodom, we must see the sin our Savior bore. We must see our own depravity. We must see our own hatred of God. And know if we are in Christ, the perfect judgment of God was taken out on his son. The story of Sodom and the story of the gospel. Oh, what sin. Oh, what judgment. Oh, what mercy and grace. That's the point. They're not far off from one another. This is our own depravity. But we must see the promise amidst the punishment. We must see that sin is real, the punishment of sin is real, and that sin was taken out on the Son of God. All the wrath of God against my evil, against my depravity, against my hatred of God, against my being an enemy of God, against my spitting in God's face, all of that was poured out on his Son. So I can stand here and say, oh, what mercy, oh, what grace. Let me pray.